Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the uh, elders in training or leaders here at Grace Fellowship Church. And I'm excited to open up God's Word with you and to uh, spend a little bit of time concluding our walk through 2 Thessalonians as we continue to look at Paul the Apostle and his life of ministry from beginning to end. So today we're going to get to the end of the beginning. And then next week we'll start at the beginning and the end. So 2 Thessalonians 3, and I'll let you turn there. There are two really big goals in the Miller household right now when it comes to parenting. Goal number one is for our youngest daughter, and it is for her to obey right away. Not just obey, but right away. And uh, for my, my oldest daughter, Rosie, we're training her. This is the second goal, to obey right away, cheerfully. Cheerfully. There's a big difference between those two goals, isn't there? Some days we enjoy a lot of success, and some days it feels like we're going backwards. See, I want my children to do the things that I ask them to do, but I want them to be happy obeying. And so the end goal of this is that one day they will trust Jesus and obey him happily. So I represent Jesus to them. Now, is that future hope worth the daily grind of success and failure? Sometimes I think we would say, no, it doesn't seem that way. But I think in our hearts, we would say, yes, it is worth it. Now, it probably doesn't seem worth it if it's up to us to perfect them. If it depends on my ability for them to obey cheerfully every time. But my wife and I toil daily. We do this every day because if God wills it, my children will one day become like Jesus in all that they say and do. And I can't stop that. If God wills it, he's going to make that happen. He's the one who's going to transform them. Now, none of this is original thinking. If these words sound familiar, these are God's words spoken through the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church, his children, in a sense, in the closing two verses of last week's text. And here are those words as a reminder. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word or word and deed what you say and what you do so Paul believes that God can establish this little tiny church because of something much bigger grace given through Jesus Christ and that's same for me as a parent and so out of that big truth, Paul can confidently deal with, you might say, comparatively small issue of their holiness. In other words, if God can handle grace, he can handle the toddler. And so can I as a parent. And so here at the beginning of his ministry and at the, the end of our study of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's reminder is that it's worth it not to give up. It's worth it. 
Rather, we should work to establish every word and every deed to the glory of God. So it's not just good words, and it's not just good work, but it's both. There's a complete package, and it's a treasure, and that treasure is worth the full effort of every Christian. I'm going to walk you through each of those two main categories this morning. First, every good word, and secondly, every good deed or every good work. So let's let's pray and let's open up God's word together in 2 Thessalonians 3. Dear God, would you quiet our hearts? Would you help us to listen? Would you help me as I speak? Would you help us as we are perhaps distracted by any past failings um, as a parent or for those of us who parenthood is something perhaps in the future? Would you help us as we look ahead to that confidently yet counting the cost? Amen. So first, every good word, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Finally, Paul writes, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. You are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. As we think not only of parenthood, we think about Paul dealing with with this church, his his small children in a way. So Paul here, I mean, these are kind words. And, And Paul is not simply encouraging the church with these good words. He's actually modeling how they should talk to one another. The words here are hopeful. And we know from the past months of study that their situation doesn't always seem that hopeful. They're being persecuted. Some are being killed. They're being mocked by society as a whole. And yet, Paul is speaking words of hope and confidence. And and these good words, these five verses, aren't simply for them. But he actually speaks to himself and he speaks to us. Let me show you those Three audiences. First, Paul has good words for his own ministry. And this is in verse 1. Paul first asks for prayer. He wants the church to pray for himself and his team. And he wants them to pray for two things. First, he prays that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored. And second, that they might be delivered from evil men. Verse 2. Now, Paul's not praying for selfish gain here. He's not being selfish by, by going first. Because you might think you would pray for them and then maybe ask for, for, the, uh, for some scraps. But I, in a sense, I think Paul is right in going first because he's on the front lines. He needs prayer. I think Paul begins by asking for prayer because he knows, even in his young ministry, that many obstacles are very, very present. I've already explained some of, the, some of those to you in the form of the persecution that Paul has endured even in planting this church. And the biggest obstacle in ministering to other people is often people. It's not money. It's not time. It's people. Or as some people have said, ministry would be a lot easier if it weren't for people. Specifically in this case, evil men or or people without faith, verse 2, opponents... To the spread of the gospel, we can assume opponents to God, we can assume. 
And the strange thing is, in Paul praying for this, Paul knows to pray for this because he was one of these guys. Paul was once an evil man, destroying the church, splitting families up, dragging people out of their home. So good these words are then, that Paul then would turn from that and speak words of hope. And I think pretty much every evangelical church in America would, would amen these good, hopeful words. But Paul continues by speaking good words to his second audience, and that's us, with four short but life-changing words. Do you see them? It comes right after men without faith. But God is faithful. Because these, these gospel opponents that Paul is talking about, they didn't just die out in the first century. This is a thing now. This continues. You might say they've always been around. But God is faithful. Those four words change how we view suffering. God's people can trust that God's plans will come to pass. These people will grow up in maturity in the same way I pray for my children, no matter what. Because God is leading the charge. He stands above unfaithful people, and so God will have the victory again. Any church would say, Amen to this. And finally, the, thir the third audience, the Thessalonian church, Paul actually has three good words for them. The first thing he has is in the second half of verse 3, God will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God's the ultimate authority. And so, if he has victory over little people who stand in opposition to him, he'll have victory over the devil too. He'll have victory over the larger things. God will preserve the church no matter what. No spread of false religion or persecution or any scheme of man brought on by the devil will end the church. And amen, we look at that today. We know that's true. Churches can be bombed, people get killed, but the gospel will actually go forth even more loudly. We're actually going to be praying for that in our small groups. Again, amen to this. The second word for the church Paul has is this in verse 4. Paul and his co-workers believe that the people of the Thessalonian church are doing well. Not that they will do well, but that they are. And something should strike you as obvious about this letter, and that to write a letter, you are not there. Paul has a confident optimism, though he's far away. He trusts the Spirit. And so he is speaking the same love that he's later going to share with the Corinthian church. That love believes the best and hopes for the best. And again, any church would say amen to this. Finally, in verse 5, perhaps the kindest words of all for the church, Paul writes, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, may God help you to love God and be like him. May God help you to love God. And of course, God would gladly do that. These are sweet words that Christians can hope in, no matter even the weakness of the church. 
because the shepherd of the church is Jesus, the one promoting the actual change in people's hearts. We have we might have programs, we may have good preaching, we may have good singing, but the one who is provoking the change is not the people, it is the Lord. And that gives Paul joy and a hope that God will bring these things to pass. The one who provides the growth is God. And parents, remember, we amen to that too as we look at our children. There's a lot of love in all these words. Paul has been mastered by these words. He was not a loving man. He was once without hope. So now, even at this young stage in his ministry, Paul has every good word for his church family. He wants them to grow in the Lord in absolutely everything. He wants the gospel to go forth and for them to be protected and preserved. And so he wants them likewise to speak every good word to one another. But Paul does not stop with a command for merely good words because God doesn't stop there either. There is a call to follow those good words with good work. And so the standard is the same. All. And I'll get the application at the end, I promise. For now, hang with me. We're on point two. Every good deed. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 15. See if you notice a slight change in tone. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but we give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Did you notice a slight tone shift? There's a lot of love in those first five verses, but some, even in, even in the church, would probably call what I just read unloving, wouldn't we? I would, at first glance. Because at first glance, it seems pretty easy to agree with that statement. Keep away from people? I'm an extrovert. What are you, nuts? <laughs> Tell people to starve if they won't work? Isn't that our job as a church? To feed everybody? But this is love too. And I want to walk us through that. Let me start by boiling these verses down into two categories. First is deal with those who are idle. And the second is much shorter. Is imitate those who are not idle. So. How should we deal with idle people? I want to start by understanding what idleness actually is. And I'll just draw your attention back to the good words in the first section 
as a bit of a contrast. You remember Paul's prayer for the church, his number one prayer? He wants the gospel to be spread how? Quickly. Idleness is the opposite of that, isn't it? Idleness is not just the child who says no. Idleness is the child who moves in slow motion to obey. Maybe the child who says yes, but their actions don't say yes. The root cause of idleness, literally staying in one place, is an aversion to work. It is an aversion to work. And here's the problem with that. Even before sin, there was work. You guys remember that in Genesis? Work didn't come out of the fall. Hard work came out of the fall. Thorns and thistles came out of the fall. The sweat of the brow came through the fall. But work was before the fall. Work is built into how God made us. Work is reflecting God. So when we encounter people like that here, not just, well, not, not, not there, like out there if they don't know the Lord, well, what, you know, we can't do much with, with that. You know, there's, there's bigger issues to solve. But what do we do when we encounter people like that here? The answer is found in, in verse 6, but then also in 10 through 15. In those verses, I'll share four things we should do with idle people. And in doing that, I'll probably distinguish some subtleties between those various forms of idleness. And then I'm going to season these words with the loving goal of, of this treatment. First, verse 6 tells us to keep away from them. To keep away from them. Not simply, not simply go to the other room when they are in a room and hope that they're too lazy to follow you. Although if they are lazy, they will probably not follow you. What this means is deal with them. It sounds strange because it says keep away from them, but I just said go towards them. It's, it's in how you're going towards them. You're going toward them to warn them. There's a problem. There's a problem here, and I cannot draw near to this. And I'll flesh that out a little bit more as we, as we go on. But the point is we, we don't just pretend it's okay. Secondly, verse 10, and this is kind of the big one, tells us to tell them that if they don't work, then they should not eat. Now, historically, what we have to know, and we're going to read it elsewhere in Paul's other letters, many would come to the church not to, not to get and to share the gospel, but to take advantage of generous people. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Of course it does. Well, what's the purpose of charity and generosity? Well, the important thing is who made charity and generosity is the Lord. And as he wrote this out in the New Testament, as he was establishing his people Israel, there was a purpose in how, in how we were called to care for the needy. In other words, why we were supposed to be generous. And there were two reasons we were supposed to be generous and charitable towards people who admittedly may be in a less fortunate situation than we are. 
Number one is the goal is to give them a God-given dignity which stems from work, to encourage them to work. And secondly, the goal is to help them work out of whatever poverty situation they might be in. Here's all I'm saying. The purpose of generosity and charity is rehabilitation. We want to establish people as functioning, contributing members of of society because they've lost that in some way. We don't know how. We we don't want to judge how they've lost it, but we do want to help them get it back. It's redemptive, and that might actually be new to some, some here. Good news, our missions team has been hard at work learning and applying some of these principles. There's a book called When Helping Hurts, because it's possible for that to happen. For you to just show up and say, oh, I know what I'll do. I will give mountains of used junk that I don't want to somebody who's broke and everybody wins. I get a clean garage, they get free stuff. But there are people out there who hoard. You know that? If you if you if you're broke and I was a bachelor, I remember this, I would take free couches and free beds and they were terrible. And they'd be just dirty and, and nasty, but here's the thing. I felt like I had to take them because they were free. What kind of dignity is in that? I'm glad I got out of that, not just because I got married. But anyways, so when helping hurts, and some of you guys actually attended a seminar, uh, Eric, Eric, and I think maybe some other people put it on not too long ago. Uh, ask anyone on the mission team, uh, Steph, who was up here doing announcements, she'll point you to the book. It's very helpful. And there's so much more I could say on this particular subject. But here's my point. It is to say that this seems harsh to tell everybody to work or not eat, but it's actually really helpful. Imagine a child who never learns to clean up or a child that never learns to dress themselves or get a job. That's terrible. We wouldn't want that for a child. Why do we want it for adults? People were designed by God to work and so to enable them to take And so to enable them to take advantage of generosity is at best robbing them of their dignity as people, and at worst, it is enabling them to stay in poverty. It's actually recycling the problem, actually making it even worse for them. So we don't want to let them live there. So the third way we deal with the idol is found in verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I'll try to keep this one a little short. For for a lot of people, maybe this is you, this this can be me, they work hard and they look busy, but they're busy doing the wrong things. They, They trap themselves, for example, maybe in the personal lives of other people. They're always thinking about that. They're always asking these questions. Not, not in hope, not to, not to help, but just to kind of like suck information out of people. Um, and you know, you might think, when I say that, you might like imagine kind of the stereotypical old lady in the front pew who just like is always in people's business. That's, that's not just what I'm talking about, but that's, that's true. This can be the well-meaning, nice family who watches show after show on Netflix, obsessed with the lives of celebrities, while other families in their church and community wither. Maybe their marriage even is falling apart. 
you just give up on the relationships you're in and you go watch these ones over here because they tie it up in a nice bow in an hour and you get cool music at the end. That's no substitute. And it's not just TV. You can do this with books. You can escape in books while your church dies. It's possible. That's actually idleness. So Paul is saying here that sometimes idle people don't look idle. But you can tell the difference, and here's how I think you could do that. Just ask them how their walk is going. Or ask them how their marriage is going. Or ask them how their family is doing. And you do this in love. If you don't want that family to fall apart, you can help by speaking up. So there's a final way to deal with the idol, and it's kind of more conclusive. Don't become idle yourself. So I'll just say this. No matter how hard you work, idleness is what will inevitably happen here if you don't keep away from the idol, if you just kind of let it slide, or you let the idol eat without working, or if you allow busybodies to just kind of do their thing. We can't ignore idleness because that, in and of itself, is idleness. If someone's idle and I don't tell them they're idle, what am I? I'd actually say I'm in a worse situation. Because I know there's a problem. And I just won't do anything about it. Now I want to season this with the love that seemed more obvious in the first five verses, but I think is present all the way through. Paul reminds us of it in verses 14 through 15. The goal of dealing with idle people. It's not to cast them into the night vindictively. It is that they might be ashamed, verse 14, of what is legitimately wrong, so that they turn and be restored as brother and sister, verse 15. The goal is redemptive. It's the same as telling people to work. The goal is redemptive, and God provides that redemption. It's just our job to speak up in love and walk with people. So, even when speaking the hard truth, we do it in love. We say, brother, you're being lazy. We just prayed for the gospel to speed along, and you're not working. You're working against those prayers. Or sister... You were redeemed for, by God for, for good work and you're distracted from that. People are dying out there. And they're dying in here. I don't know if you've ever been to a church and as you're leaving it says you're now entering the mission field. I think that belongs on both ends of the sign. And what, what, what more can I, can I say here? I mean, as we deal with the idol... As we actually do this in love, we imitate those who are not idle. Paul illustrates this in the middle section of the portion of text, verses 7 through 9, which I just kind of went around earlier. He says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. 
I mean, you heard a few weeks ago what, what we had to say about the elders working hard here. We want to imitate them. They're not working for fame. They're certainly not working for money. They're doing it to imitate Paul. And Paul did it to imitate Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to be idle, but to work. Speaking good words and working good deeds without sin, night and day. All for the sake of his Father God. Even to death, so that the idle and the disobedient could be redeemed into the family. In the same way that this was the main point of Jesus' life, here's your main point. Because of God's plans for the future, we can have great hope and we can do great work that God's word will speed ahead. In short, it is worth it to work for change and to deal with the idol. It is worth it. We are helping the gospel speed along as we deal with the idol. Let's apply this to our heads and our hands and our hearts and, and even as we pray for the persecuted church today. First, here's a way that you can apply to your head or rather what you know. And that is the belief in your head that needs to change or to be sharpened It is that it is worth it to pray and to work for change. Prayer is worth it. Hard work is worth it. These words Paul has spoken to the church are true. These prayers that he has asked for are genuine. We can speed the spread of the gospel through good words and work, especially as we refine one another and as we call one another to pray and work. So believe it's worth it to pray for people and to work and to work for change and to, to help call out the idol. The, the long-term payoff is much better than any awkwardness that you might feel before you speak up. This one perhaps could be the hardest. This is probably the hardest for me. Um, the second, the heart change. Don't despise the idol. The child who you've spent hours cleaning and cooking their dinner and they can't even be bothered to eat it. Don't despise the idol. Casting them out or being bitter with them in anger, that's despising them. But so is ignoring them. I was at a, was at a fall festival and there was a kid on a tire swing and he wouldn't get off. And mom says, you know, she's coming at him. You can tell there's just lots going on. And she just says, get down right now. And he looks at her and says, no! And he just keeps swinging. And she just kind of looks away. Don't despise your children. Deal with them. Warning them in love. With hope. With hope of redemption. Your children are not your enemies. Your spouse is not your enemy. Nobody here is your enemy. Lastly, your hands. Pray hard and, and work hard. Use your hands to pray. Use your hands to work. Don't ever sacrifice one for the other. Don't only pray and not work. Don't only work and not pray. It's possible 
to be people with very good words who don't work. We call them hypocrites. It's also possible to only work and have no love for prayer, good words. Legalists, Pharisees, I don't know. It's not good. So do both. Pray and work. That's how the gospel spreads, and it starts here in this room. I'll end with your conclusion, verses 16 through 18. I just want to leave you with this hope as Paul concludes his writing and then goes on to work night and day. This is the beginning of his ministry. We're going to leapfrog over all these churches he plants and all this suffering he endures, giving his life in a long and hard ministry. And we'll look at the beginning and the end of that ministry starting next week. But his parting words to this, what seems to be his first church plants, is this. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter to mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I'll just say this. May we as a church be filled with that same peace that Paul wishes for for the Thessalonian church, trusting God's care to transform us as we do hard work and as we pray. And may we as a church also be filled with the same genuineness that when we work and we pray, people look at us and they say, that's Jesus. That's not man-centered. And maybe most importantly, let us finally be filled with the same grace that we in all of our words and deeds work not to tear down or even pray to tear down, but that we, many here, would be restored as brothers and sisters in God's family. And as a result, many out there would be brought into God's family. Let's pray and then we'll take communion together. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a stirring thing to know that our prayers have power and that our work has results. And it's sobering to know that that we can it's possible for us to be working towards the wrong goal. It's possible for us to be people of of perhaps prayer and, and good words who do not follow it up with work. Lord, if I were to boil it down to anything I would say this let us not measure our walk based on what we see around us, but by looking to the cross. May we not measure the quality of our walk based on the people we see around us, but by the cross that stands in front of us. Lord, help us to remember that even as we take the Lord's Supper. Amen.